This podcast is sponsored by Acres USA, the voice of eco-agriculture. For more than 45 years, the writers, editors, and growing experts at Acres USA have cultivated information about modern farming practices that do not rely on toxic pesticides and toxic herbicides. We share that information through our monthly magazine, our online bookstore, events around the country, and through online articles and podcasts like this. If you're a new farmer or have been farming for a lifetime, you know there's always more to learn. New research into soil life, gut health, and nutrient and mineral applications are changing the way we look at farm management, and the most important part, the future of our soil. At Acres USA, we are committed to finding the experts to teach you these methods and practices. Learn more at www.acresusa.com or by calling 1-800-355-5313. Folks outside the U.S. and Canada can call us at 970-392-4464. If your business would like to advertise or sponsor the Tractor Time podcast, spots are available. Contact us today to find out more, and thank you for listening to Tractor Time. We are in a revolution, but it is a revolution in which the side that fires the first shot loses. We will not fire any shots because our weapon is uncommon with sense. Day and welcome to the Tractor Time podcast by Acres USA. I'm your host Ryan Slaybaugh, and today's guest is Dr. Nasha Winters. I'm the general manager of Acres USA, and welcome everybody here to join our podcast today. I met Dr. Nasha Winters last year at a conference in Columbus, Ohio. I had heard about her talk there. Uh, it was a couple hours from the large number of people who walked out inspired. Uh, they were buzzing and sharing the word. After meeting with her, I can understand why. She was unassuming. She was funny. She presented a message about human health. Uh, she connected all the dots for our, our audience of farmers and, and growers, uh, and it made a lot of sense. Uh, it was about how we create environments in our own bodies, similar to how we create environments in our physical world that either promote and foster health, or the opposite, disease and injury. She wrote a book on this, in fact. It was called The Metabolic Approach to Cancer. It came out last year. It's been a hit with our audience of farmers and good food advocates, uh, so much so that at last year's conference, we sold out of her books before her book signing. That was a big oops, but we will bring more this year. And she's going to teach an all-day, full-day class on her approach to health in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, December 4th through 7th, please come. Uh, you're going to want to hear more after you listen to today's podcast, I guarantee it. Uh, Dr. Winners is the founder, CEO, and visionary of Optimal Training, excuse me, Optimal Terrain Consulting. She is a naturally board-certified naturopathic doctor, licensed acupuncturist, and a fellow of the American Board of Naturopathic Oncology. She knows a whole lot about a whole lot of things related to health. She lectures all over the world, consults on projects, and uh, we're going to get into a few of those uh, this hour. Uh, Welcome, Dr. Nisha. We're excited to have you on the program. Thanks, Ryan. It's great to be here. Uh, uh, First question for you. I'm guessing there might be a few people out there going, why would Acres USA have a doctor on their program when the last week's episode was about soil health and soil mineral and soil nutrition? Uh, Help us connect the dots. What value do you have in uh, reaching reaching farmers and what value do they bring to you when you you speak with them? A few things. I mean, first of all, I guess, um, you know, I grew up in Kansas. I grew up with a family of farmers and ranchers. Um, spent my summers on a farm in Kansas, uh, basically up almost through high school. Um, so to me, farming life was just part of life. It was the, the place where I got to see 
the cycles of nature at its best, right? I, you know, so I saw things living and dying and, you know, returning back to earth over and over. And I saw exactly where my food came from and helped prepare it and can it and preserve it and pluck it and slaughter it and, you know, got, got right in there with it, had a very intimate relationship with it. And I think today, most people think that their food comes from a cellophane wrapper covered, you know, ingredient or in a box or a can. And we've really lost our connection with the, the where our food comes from and also who brings us our food. We've really lost touch with the people who are most critical for our very survival. And so that's one component of why I think it's important to have this conversation is we've all become quite disconnected. Um, from one another and from seasons and cycles in the world around us. In fact, a little tidbit here, the average American, or I should say the, uh, the American citizen spends an, um, an average of less than 15 minutes outdoors each day. That is frightening, right? And so how, of course, would you even know where your food comes from if you're sitting in front of a television or a computer screen all day indoors? So that's something I really uh, connect with and want to shake up people to reconsider how they're living their lives. So that segues into another important component of why I think it's wonderful that I have the opportunity to speak with the people who nourish and nurture me. I consider the pharmacy, F-A-R-M, the most important part of our health, frankly, the foundation of our health and well-being. And instead, again, in the last 50 years or so, we have become very dependent on the pharmacy with the PH and lost our touch with the pharmacy, F-A-R-M. And so that place now, I love, there's a quote out there, I can't remember who said it, but they said basically if it is made in a factory, don't eat it, you know? Um, And we really want to get back to where our food originally naturally comes from without being chemicalized, processed, um, or otherwise adulterated. Right, I had Edwin Blosser on last year. Uh, you might have met Edwin, and he he said uh, I loved his phrase, which was, "There's no such thing as junk food. It's either junk or food." And uh, that Ooh, that stuck good. with me. Yes, that's yeah. perfect. Nailed it. Uh, but no, I, I I appreciate that. Yeah, that um, that that distance that people have gotten from the food supply. Uh, I, do you sense that, that is that changing at all? I mean, I always hear about the next generation coming up that they're a little more aware. They're not as fast food uh, dependent as certainly my generation was. You know, I'm, I'm 40 years old and when we grew up, fast food was the treat. That's what we got taken to uh, when we did something good. And and uh, yeah. I, recently I was with my nephew. He's 16 years old in Illinois and and uh, he said, I'm going to go meet my friends at McDonald's. And I said, oh, that's cool. Are you guys eating there? He goes, no, that's gross. So it's still a hangout spot, but they, <laughs> it, was a, it was an interesting reaction to get from him on that one. So uh, are you seeing, is, is, is there any hope out there? Are we seeing things change? I think we're definitely seeing things changing. And, you know, one of the big changes that started happening, I'm trying to think of how long it's been, probably a good decade ago now, is the the famous um, chef. He was known as the Naked Chef, but Jamie Oliver right. out of the U.K., um, I don't know if you recall, he had just one season, unfortunately, of a TV show called The Food Revolution. And what he did is he was basically uh, brought into a very, uh, very downtrodden part of um, the country, somewhere in the southeast, to kind of rehabilitate their food service system. And watching his presentation, watching the, the TV show week after week, to see what he was up against you know, literally, and what he was seeing and how there was not a fresh 
items in there. Everything was from, you know, frozen. Everything came in a, in a big, um, you know, container of some sort, whether it be plastic or aluminum cans. But it was such an amazing wake-up call because he would do these little exercises with the students, with the family members, with the cooks, you know, the, the, the school cooks. And people were very resistant to him. But this was a community of kids who were already morbidly obese and dealing with diabetes and other chronic health issues below the age of 12, pre-puberty, right? Wow. And so he was committed and passionate about getting in there and seeing what the culprit was. And they started showing like what it looked like to eat an average year of sugar for each kid in the school district just from the school lunches. And it blew people away to see this huge mountainous mound of sugar. And then he started going into some of these people's homes and looking at what they were eating as a family. And he'd peruse their cupboards, open up their fridge, open up their freezer. There was no food. As, as the doctor at the Acres conference said, you know, it was all junk. There was no food there. And he made small, simple steps that were still within budget that had huge changes to the health of this entire community as well as to the, you know, the school system. And so why I bring this up is that he, it was such a far-fetched wow idea 10 years ago, and yet little pockets like this are popping up everywhere. We're seeing every week I see an ad of you know, a new hospital that's decided to have their own gardens and grow their own food, or restaurants and communities that have gone totally sustainable, local, seasonal. You know, and, and the, the rise of farmers markets and CSAs and the changes in school health initiatives and school food initiatives, it's pretty cool to see that it is starting to really branch out into the entire community, not just one little, you know, higher echelon of society that can go to a farmer's market and spend a fortune on a Saturday morning. It's, a, it's becoming much more, much more public-centric. I, I love that you're saying that because that's, um, that's the feeling we have too, you know, here is, uh, it's certainly, you know, at least anecdotally, we're seeing evidence that, you know, uh, things are, the conversation is changing at least, which is where we, we'd like to start at the very least. Uh, behavior might come later, but at least we're talking about it at this point. Uh, uh, we, we did a tour here of our school district um, in Greeley, Colorado. Uh, it's, it's not a, a wealthy school district by any means. In fact, it has a lot of uh, need for creative solutions for funding and one of the things they did was partner with local farmers here they use about 30 percent of their food comes from farms within 200 miles of the school district they uh, have a huge central uh, facility to receive all the food from farmers that then they that they then cook and create in resealable bags that they then put it out to the schools Uh, they even have their own chili roaster um, they have a, a mostly hispanic community and so their their community did not support the the tortillas and salsas that were uh coming in for off the big trucks and so they make four four salsas from scratch every day and partner with a local tortilla maker to bring in those and so uh they got kids eating again a little bit and it wasn't wasn't a huge shift but it was just you know five degrees to the right just to get them started uh down that path so it was uh it was it was cool to see it was cool to see that a school district that didn't have a lot of funding figure it out and be able to do these Kind of thing. So. Wow, that that gives you hope, doesn't it? To see those small steps and even small remote places in you know your own state is pretty powerful. 
it, it is, and and, uh, and I just know that, that uh, man, I wish I would have had that opportunity growing up. We had chicken nuggets and, and mac and cheese and pizza. You know, that's what we were eating at the school like, on. So, uh, you heard and that. some variation on that theme. It didn't deviate much from that. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Right, and then uh, they even, you know, the one thing, and this will just and I tie that full circle, they they got permission to actually grow gardens in their schools and eat food out of it, oh. but it was a really hard challenge for them to get permission to grow the garden and then eat from the garden yeah. because there was so much fear right yeah. Yeah. so much fear that that food might get contaminated or something and they ch- kind of had to sit and explain how our food was created in the first place and how it's so much more safe to grow your own food uh, than to to have it shipped across the country to you so um anyway yeah the education is is large uh, the demand for education is large i guess still at this point. Um, well, and one of the cool things I think that's a change is that, you know, still in our culture, in our world, the almighty dollar still drives the truck down the road, right? right? So, right. you know, look, I'm, I'm also a realist when, even though I'm an eternal optimist first, I'm also a realist to know that, hey, I have been living this way for, you know, 27 years at this point in time of, of paying such close attention, but I've always been the freaky outlier. You know, I think all my friends and family think I wear a um, or for years thought I wore like a, an aluminum foil hat, you know? I mean, that's how far out <laughs> my ideas around food were for the general public. But it's changing, and part of that change is that when you have, I can't, I don't know the percentages specifically, but the demand for organics are coming, you know, it ex- exponentially grows every single year. Um, the demand for, you know, grass-fed and grass-finished beef, mm-hmm. the demand for non-processed, you know, foods, it, it's exploding in the industry. So then, of course, the industry takes note and they start to redirect their path thanks to the consumer. So the consumers are responsible for changing this, not our science, not the lab values that I see. Sadly enough, it's, it's just human nature. But we're seeing things like organic food in Walmart, you know. Mm-hmm. We're seeing things like healthified, upgraded fast food you know, uh, franchises starting to open up. It's like, you can't really take the fast food away, but you certainly can upgrade it, you know? And that, I think, is another big uh, clue that times are changing. Yeah, and that's, uh, yeah, we're seeing, I mean, and and even the farmland converted over to organic trails behind that consumer demand. So I know that if we're seeing 10 to 15% in farmland being converted or the growth uh, in that every year, that the demand has to be 30 or 40% out in front of that pulling, pulling that hard. Wow, interesting, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. You, you, in your book, you wrote a lot about, um, you know, really creating environments in your body for uh, less disease, specifically cancer. Uh, and obviously that, that's a big word, and especially in our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, it causes you know, different emotions with, with everyone when you bring it up, bad memories, skepticism, uh, alarm, disinformation. Uh, what kind of reaction have you gotten from your book uh, related to cancer? And are, are people been pretty open-minded and receptive to the, to the lessons you're trying to educate them on? It's really funny, you know, again, I've been thinking, you know, thinking this way and approaching it this way for more than a quarter century, and if I had written this book 25 years ago, even five years ago, I I don't think it would have been received as well as it's been. I mean, it has been shockingly well-received. In fact, I wrote this book with my co-author, Jessica Kelly, Mm -hmm. because I was tired of saying the same thing over and over, because my understanding, my experience came from 25 plus years of learning and exploring for myself and there was no one place to get all the information. So I did my best to try and bring in as much information as possible into 
you know, the, the mix, if you will. And so that's where the book was born from. So I really thought I was going to have maybe my mom read it, a couple <laughs> patients read it. <laughs> I had no idea it would become such a success. And I think it's about timing. Yeah. I think that folks are, you know, when we look at the statistics today that one in two men and one in 2.4 women will be, will be diagnosed with cancer in this country, it is time to change the statistics. And you have to, you know, no matter what your belief system is, that's just simple statistics that are out there. And folks need to be aware that they can do a lot more about, you know, changing that for themselves and for their loved ones. Right. So right being said, it has to start somewhere. And what do you do every day? Hmm. You know, is you eat, you must eat. And and that is the place where the foundation of your day to day experience is based on what you put on in and around your body. That is sending off all kinds of chemical messengers. Uh, epigenetic switches, basically things telling the command center of your body how to behave and how to how to to be healthy or how to be unhealthy, depending on the information and the fuel that's being provided for your body and being. And so we try to create kind of a, a manual or a handbook, if you will, on how to explore whether or not you are doing your part in keeping this body of yours um, in a in a much better place. And so we kind of opened the book with a questionnaire, you know, a 10-part questionnaire based on the 10 patterns that I've personally seen over 25 years that seem to uh, cause an affliction of cancer or other chronic illness on people when they're out of balance. And those include things like our epigenome, our epigenetics was handed down from previous generations. But the type of gene that we get that we actually can do something about, it's not, it's, it's dynamic, it's not stuck in cement. So you can't just say, oh, my dad had blood pressure, my mom, you know, my grandpa had blood pressure issues. No, those are things you can absolutely change. It's not unchangeable um, process. Then we have things like our microbiome, which we'll be talking about a lot here in a second. And then things like our glycemic load, our blood sugar, and how we fuel ourselves with our food sources today. Our thoughts or our emotions are really key. So is our stress response and our circadian rhythm, which definitely mimics nature. Um, and then, of course, things like our hormonal balance, inflammation, immune system function, our blood circulation, and our environmental toxicants. These are all the pieces that go into your bucket, and that's what we try to help people start to do their own assessment by taking the quiz so they can sit there and say, oh, gosh, I scored 8 out of 10 on these two categories. Maybe I should pay more attention here. And that gives people a starting point as to where they can start to cultivate health and steer clear of disease. That's a... Uh uh, I, I love one of the charts you have up front of the book, which is 10 questions to ask your oncologist, which I thought is, a, is just a great guide to uh, have in your back pocket to go in. Because I think so many times um, uh, it, it's embarrassing to ask uh, questions, and there's also just, uh, it's, it's hard to know what to ask um, in those situations. Uh, it, you also wrote something in your book that just, I still can't believe, honestly, that the American Cancer Society recommends snacks for, mm -hmm. for people going through cancer treatment that include cakes, cookies, donuts, ice cream, microwave snacks. Um, you know, I was raised going, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. And I'm thinking if I, you know, that certainly ranks right up there. But but when you have societies like that or groups like that that are have such a huge audience um, educating that, how, you know, how do we make sure that, uh, 
I guess doctors and oncologists are also uh, presenting your information as well uh, along with that. Yeah, and you know what? You're, this kind of ties back into how we start the conversation about where we're seeing some changes start to, starting to happen. Um, my colleague Jeff and I have been, you know, um, hired to consult with places like Harvard on their nutrition program for their oncology patients, and been, um, you know, hired to speak at a variety of medical conferences and whatnot to share our experience and our data, if you will, because I, I don't do anything without testing. So this isn't just a, an ideology. This isn't a dogma. This is based on what bodies need, are needing at any given moment. So my mantra is test, assess, and address. And food has the most powerful potential to change your inner dynamic in a very short period of time. So um, it's exciting to me that there is an opening and there are more and more conferences and more and more research studies starting to happen around nutrition because we didn't want to funnel our dollars into that, partly because food is a sensitive topic. Mm -hmm. You said in the very beginning, it's very emotional. There's also a lot of industries that are paying to keep our hospitals open and paying to keep our pharmaceutical companies alive and well and more research in the pharmacy with the pH versus the pharmacy of yes, um, we don't have a lot of motivation financially to know how well food works for you. So I have, you know, over 25 plus years, tens of thousands of N equal one, you know, people in my experience that have been able to show without a shadow of a doubt that a dietary intervention does in fact change the terrain, does in fact change the physiologic biochemical outcomes in their lab testing and of course their subjective experience of how they're feeling and how they're looking to even the outside world. So I don't need to wait for a billion dollar RTC clinical trial to right. tell me that what I've been doing for a quarter of a century works, right? right. Um, great when it catches up with us, but we're all, we'll all be on to the next thing by the time the research catches up. Um, so, but it is starting to change, Ryan, slowly but surely. And that, again, gives me hope for the future. That's, uh, that's good, yeah, I, yeah. I, it might help our audience our um Help explain a little bit of your approach uh, when you when you know, say uh, I know there's no average customer, but say you have an average customer. Just um, okay. <laughs> what uh, uh, you know, who walks in and says I, I'm not feeling too well, and I'm on a you know traditional American diet. Uh, what what chain you know what would you say off the gate, and kind of what what advice would you give them to uh, how can they start today being healthier? I love that. You know, and it's simple because for years before I started focusing on oncology, I had a general family practice. And being in a small um, Colorado town in the Southwest, um, for many people, I was their primary care physician. So I was sort of literally the womb to the tomb doctor for many, many years in my community. So I did everything from prenatal nutrition and preconception nutrition to pregnancy nutrition to, you know, infancy, toddler all the way up to, you know, elder care nutrition and even end-of-life care nutrition and, and all the other therapies that go along with that. So just to give you that framework that, you know, every single person, whether you are just a, a twinkle in your parent's eye or whether you are literally taking your last breath in this world, something can be done to enhance your experience, your, your chemistry. Wow. So the basics are very simple. Eat real food. It, it, it doesn't matter, and I don't even, like, when I'm starting to work with people, I don't even, you know, care so much about the macronutrient ratios, like how many carbs and how many proteins, how many fats, 
are you giving initially? We, depending on the person's situation, as you said, I individualize it very, very much. But ultimately, if I'm on a, on a train and I have a group of people around me asking questions, you know, I'm basically going to say, okay, look at that ingredient on the box of crackers that you're eating right now. Can you recognize everything there? Can you pronounce everything on that label? Most people can't. And I'm like, if you can't, if it's got more than five ingredients um, and they're things you cannot pronounce, you probably shouldn't be ingesting it. That's pretty straightforward. <laughs> I like it. You know, I, yeah. The pronunciation <laughs> test. I love it. Yes. Say that again. Sorry, Ryan. No, I said the pronunciation <laughs> test. I think everybody can get that one. I think we're all yeah. like And that's like a simple place. You'd mm -hmm. be shocked. At, you know, right now, about 98% of the population eats foods that they can't pronounce mm -hmm. and, and don't have any clue of what is actually in what they're eating. So my first encouragement to people is start to become a label reader, mm -hmm. right? That makes start sense. to kind of challenge yourself to start to limit the ingredient list of the things you're eating and keep as close to the original, original source of that food as possible. That alone will start to shift a lot in your chemistry. The other simple thing that people take for granted is hydration, okay? And so I can't even tell you how many people are, I mean, I would probably say 90% of the population is also terribly dehydrated. And when you think about it, our cell, we are mostly water, right? right? And when people have back pain, for instance, I actually worked in a pain hospital in Arizona, a very famous pain clinic, clinic that people came from all over the world to have, you know, the best of the best assessments and treatments. And so they brought me on as a naturopathic doctor to kind of do some nutritional counseling with folks during this process. And I was horrified when I would ask the question, how many, you know, ounces of water do you drink a day? And I would show them a cup you know, so they could see what a, a, a you know, what that, what I'm talking about. Because some people say, oh, I drink a lot of water, but it's probably like little symbols of water, maybe six of those a day, and they think that's a lot. So it's starting to show people that you need to drink half your weight in ounces of fresh filtered water every day just to meet your bare minimum needs of what your physiology needs to function at its most optimal. People were falling far short of that, or even worse, they were drinking things like sodas and coffee and caffeinated beverages that were depleting their water sources even more, dehydrating their tissues more. And so especially these people coming in with back pain, I'm like your bot, your, the discs in your spine are like little mini water balloons. Huh. And if you're dehydrated, those are dehydrated, and you just are sitting on bone on bone, you know? No wonder your back hurts. No wonder you've blown out this. You've dehydrated those little air, you know, water balloons. And so we would just simply start to have people take in and track their water intake, and the doctors were mortified at how simple this was because their patients would come back a week later, and their pain levels were already 50% of what they were the week before with nothing but water intake. You're kidding me. That I, I <laughs> never heard that before. That's fascinating. That uh, yeah, uh, that yeah, and it's so common sense, but we've gotten away from that a little bit. Uh, yeah. You know, I, 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 Charles Walters, our, our founder. I was listening to an audio file yeah. the other day, and I, that's just what came to mind when you were talking. He said. Uh, you know, we're, we're at the edge of a rev revolution, but we can only, uh, uh, but it won't be the one who fires the first shot that wins. It'll be the one that's armed with uncommon good sense. And I think, you know, that's, that, that's what you're talking about right now. Drink water and eat healthy food, you know, um, that's real food, excuse me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
because you know some person's idea of healthy might be different to somebody else but ultimately as long as you're sticking to something as close to the source as possible that's a really good starting point and then depending on your personal macronutrient mm. needs depending on what's going on for you you may need a higher amount of fat quality fat or a higher amount of vegetable intake or a higher amount of you know particular proteins that are that are absolutely geared to your personal biochemistry um, and that's where you know one of the things when we talked about um, why things have gotten so bad why almost half of us will have cancer in our lifetime in, in the United States I mean part of this is back in the 1850s mm. that's when we started milling um, sugar and flour prior to that the average percentage of our diet that was carbohydrate was 30% of our diet was carbohydrate at that time. Now, we today call that way of eating a low-carb diet, and we played it off <laughs> that it's some type of fat that's not here to stay, and that, you know, and I'm thinking, up until 1850, that was the diet right. for millennia. Right, but suddenly we are in the mindset. I mean, I love that folks that ate normal stuff from Joel Salatin, you know, right. <laughs> of that idea. We've become so brainwashed by the industry over the past seventy years that we think it's normal to eat a seventy to eighty percent of our diet is carbohydrate today. That's the average, That's and people don't even know. Like I always ask my patients, I have them do a diet diary for me, mm. and I want them to tell me quantities and brands, and you know, I want to know everything. And so people will always say, "Well, I don't eat any sugar," and then I go through it with them, and I use something like Chronometer mm. or My Fitness Pal, and we actually put in their day-to-day -day diet diary. We have them go through the process, and people are mortified. Even the RD nutritionists, which are not therapeutic nutritionists, okay? They are taught to give you just enough of the nutrient to prevent things like scurvy or beriberi, you know? <laughs> so it's not about the treatment and prevention of disease. When you see an RD nutritionist, they're still giving data and recommendations to people with heart disease and diabetes that's about 20 years behind. You wanna work with a master's of clinical nutrition. You wanna work with a nutrition therapist who can actually help you use food as your medicine, not just a band-aid on preventing some very minor, you know, some very bizarre diseases. So that being said, um, when we started to morph into this, you know, 40%, 50%, 50%, everything else that kicked in, post, especially after post-World War II, we became just a pure sugar-burning engine. And sugar, if you've ever, like, cooked with sugar, what does it do? It browns, right? right? That's oxidation. So we're basically oxidizing ourselves so much. We're speeding up our demise. We're speeding up our mortality. We're breaking down and rusting out the engine. We might be living longer, but we certainly aren't living healthier. And most people die with multiple chronic diseases that they've had for multiple decades, whereas before we were like a perfect specimen until we weren't, you know, and then we right. don't. But today we kind of drag on the inevitable, and that is thanks to a lot of the things we have been putting in our mouth for the past 70, 80 years. Wow. That, uh, uh, you read a lot about the ketogenic diet. Uh, for those who don't yeah. know, and maybe a few like me who think they do, uh, what is the ketogenic diet or ketogenic diet? Could you explain that? Yeah. Yeah, I sure can. So, you know, there's a lot of misinformation about the ketogenic diet. Again, a lot of this has just been perpetuated by 
RD nutritionists and medical doctors who get hung up on a, a, a totally different disease process called ketoacidosis. And just for your listeners to know, ketoacidosis is very much a dangerous medical condition. And it's when you have both very elevated blood ketones, so upwards of 14 and higher on your blood ketone levels on a blood test, and your glucose is also off the charts high. And that is in a very deep state of acidosis where the body is breaking down. And we can sometimes see that in the type 1 diabetic population that's really gone, like an unmanaged case of type 1 diabetes can go into a state of ketoacidosis, and it could be very dangerous to the, to the patient and to their kidney function, et cetera. That is not caused by a diet, a ketogenic diet. A ketogenic diet is simply a, a way of eating that induces your body's natural burning fuel source of ketones. We were given, a, we were all born with a hybrid engine, plain and simple, right? Mm -hmm. And up until 1850, we were like, human Prius, you know, we were constantly easily, you eat your last meal as the sun was going down, you'd fast through the night, you'd get up in the morning, maybe do some hard work with whatever you were doing on the farm, and then have your big break fast. And if you were living at that time, and we were able to test your urine and or test your blood, you would have likely been in a state of low ketosis because that's what happens when you forego food for a small period of time um, in a state of balanced metabolic processes within your body. So what's happened is as we started increasing our sugar intake, we left the ability to easily become that hybrid engine. And the hybrid engine fuel are ketones, which are basically fatty acids so from high quality fats. And the other thing we burn is carbohydrates. Okay? Mm -hmm. And so those two fuel sources, we started to favor the sugar burning for the last 70, 80 years. And it was made worse when we thought that going low fat in the 1970s was a brilliant idea. Mm -hmm. Thank God the research is catching up to uh, remind people that that wasn't the case. Right. <laughs> because what happened when we took out the fat, we added in more sugar. Because when you take out the fat, it doesn't taste good. And so when you think about what your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, mm -hmm. depending on your age, what they were eating, you know, I remember the can, the coffee can under the kitchen counter that kept all the drippings, you know, the lard, right. the drippings that were out there. And that would make, that would go into all baked goods. That would go into baking, you know, making stews and soups and stir fries. And, you know, it was part of your day-to-day -day living, like collect the fat and reuse it. Mm -hmm. And it was that fat source from the animal, from high quality pastured eggs, from the backstrap of pastured, you know, grass grazing creatures and uh, wild, you know, roaming creatures that were pecking on little, you know, bugs and whatnot out there in nature that also upped their fat, quality fat content, their omega-3 fatty acids in particular, we got away from that. We started telling people to use margarine instead of lard. We started telling people to use Crisco instead of lard. We started telling people to not eat eggs. We started telling people to avoid fat at all costs, and we started really promoting um, a world of fat-free foods and fat-free diets. We also got people terrified of eating animal protein, and then the animal protein that we've had most access to in the last 50 years or so came from giant factory farms. Right. And so those creatures have never seen the light of day, and they're fed a diet that was not natural to their own 
you know, lineage. And so suddenly we're feeding them corn and other and soy and other grains that these animals never would have naturally grazed on in nature. And suddenly we've changed their essential fatty acid from being mostly an omega-3 base to an omega-6, which is very pro-inflammatory. So an example is also since we changed to more of a sugar burning over these decades, we have lowered our intake of omega-3s and increased our intake of Mm omega-6s. And it used to be a three to one of omega-6 to omega-3s, which was the perfect balance for what our chemistry needed. But today it's an average of 30 to one. Wow. That's how toxic. And that, when you think about rancid oil, Mm. we're all rancid oil and burnt sugar cookies. You know, that's who we are today walking around the planet. And so it's really limited our ability to heal and to prevent. So all of that story I just told you comes down to this crazy little cell within or a little a little organelle within a cell called the mitochondria mm-hmm. the mitochondria our mighty mitochondria are our source of atp our source of energy and our source of fuel and this is what makes our bodies drive down the road every day is the health and number of and efficiency of our mitochondria and so the past 70 years or so as we have become more and more sugar burning and more and more oxidized and proper fats and being unfortunately pushed in the wrong direction of our nutritional advice out there in the world, we have become a population of sicker and sicker people. And simply stated, our mitochondria are screaming for our help. There are little power plants. I've heard that. Is that do I have that about right? That's yeah. perfect. That's exactly what they are. That uh, uh, if you had to say, I'll, t- I'll tell you a story um, about uh, it's a, little, a personal story. My my father had was diagnosed with di- type two diabetes about a year year and a half ago, and he was really struggling. Um, you know, he's in his seventies, uh, ate um, a lot of you know. He grew up on a farm, but then you know, kind of got off the farm and, and became a uh, I'll use this term again an average American uh, for a long <laughs> for a long time. And uh, uh, so he got back on it, and you know, one of the they they put him on the medication, and he. Uh, you know, it ruled, you know, kind of eliminated some things from his diet and moderated some things from his diet, but he was still really struggling to get consistent measurements. He was all over the place. He was really frustrated. He didn't really want to be on the medication. Um, and he was trying to figure it out. So he went to a different doctor who prescribed the ketogenic diet to him. And wow. he had never heard of this before. And he got on it, and within 60 days, his blood sugar levels dropped by about 50%, and his other readings were in the, in the sixes versus in the nines. And he's uh, now waning off the medication over the next three or four months to see if he can remain that just by by the diet because he saw such a dramatic uh, change in it. So as a son, I was a little skeptical going, are you sure you want to do this? Is this going to lead to longer term mm-hmm. health issues? You know, just making sure he had thought about it. But uh, I thought, you know, we talk a lot about cancer environment, but is there application? It seems like there would be application and that at least a survey of one, my father, that, that a yeah. ketogenic diet would have good application for at least uh, type 2 diabetes at that point. Are you seeing uh, the same thing? It, it's so true. And actually, there's a huge, I'm trying to think of the name of the research trial. Um, when you go to post this, I'll try and get that for you to give a link. Great. But there is a huge movement. In fact, whenever I go to a metabolic conference, so mm-hmm. conferences basically that talk about how we fuel our body into health or disease, okay? And talking mm-hmm. about that hybrid engine of being a sugar or a fat burner. And when you are a fat burner, you are releasing these little chemicals called ketones, mm-hmm. um, ketone bodies. And that actually, um, your mitochondria function more efficiently and effectively burning fat than it does burning sugar. It will preferentially grab the sugar because it's sort of like lazy. 
right? right. So it's like, ah, oh, <laughs> the sugar. Sure. But at the end of the day, that makes you know less number of ATP through every cycle than if you gave the body pure quality, high quality fat, which makes these beautiful little ketone bodies. So we started learning that um, you know the, the first time a ketogenic diet was used therapeutically in the West was through, I can't remember if it was Harvard or Hopkins in the 1920s for seizures, for epilepsy in kids. Really? And up and oh yeah, so in the 1920s, it was the treatment for epilepsy. But then in the 1940s, some of the seizure medications came onto the market and everyone's human nature is that let's take a pill, it's far easier than managing a diet. And so really, the diet fell out of favor for quite some time, as you can imagine, um, yet it never worked, the, the medication never worked as well as the um, diet. Well, there's been this resurrection because of interest in the growing number of neurological diseases, the growing number of diabetes, the growing number of cancer cases and cardiovascular illness in the West, that each of those diseases I just categorized for you have had their own kind of uh, you know, followers or doctors or researchers that have gone down the path of, hey, I'm going to see what, what this does for Alzheimer's or I'm going to mm-hmm. see what this does for diabetes or cardiovascular disease or cancer. And what we've all found, in fact, we've all been put together in a lot of conferences together in the last few years, is that if you go and tend to the mitochondria by giving it a more efficient fuel source, you can basically reverse or at least stabilize all chronic illness. That is a bold statement, but it's what we're seeing. And the research, the data is picking up momentum every day because the patients are demanding that their doctors know about this because it's people like your dad, who everyone scratches their head and says, well, at 70, you shouldn't be coming off your medications. You should be adding more to the pile. Right. Right. <laughs> There's that pharmacy again. Uh-huh. Um, whereas you can use the pharmacy with an F to totally get off the pharmacy with a pH. And so there is so much around this. And you know, I don't know if your reader, or your listeners know this, or um, if you're even aware that diabetes, Alzheimer's, cardiovascular disease, are all mitochondrial diseases. Hmm. They're the same, they're on the same spectrum as cancer. It's no wonder that we have a higher incidence of cancer in people that have diabetes. And just to throw another statistic out there, Mm. by 2020, that's a year and a half away, (laughs) it's expected that half of Americans will be diabetic. And I can tell you from someone who tests all the time, we're already, we're way beyond that. I think it's way more than 50%. Because people just run a glucose and right. your glucose lies, right? right? You have to run a hemoglobin A1C, yep. which is the average of your blood sugars over three months, and that should be under five for you to be metabolically flexible. And an insulin should be under three. And our ranges, so remember, labs are based on the average of the population. So please remember that our population, at least half of us, are terribly ill already. And so when we're like, oh, good, let's compare ourselves to the person who's already at one foot in the grave, that's not going to help prevent you from getting there faster yourself. So you need to get into the range that is therapeutic and preventative. And so having keeping your hemoglobin A1C under 5, keeping your insulin under 3, you pretty much turn off a lot of mechanisms to Alzheimer's and dementia, to diabetes, to cancer, um, to cardiovascular disease. And so it's pretty exciting to see the, the number of research you know, coming out around the world on this very topic. 
and the healthcare movements that are happening in a variety of countries because of these findings. And it, and it makes sense. I mean, this is a, a these are these these are the foods at our disposal most readily if we're growing them right. Um, and so that the processed stuff is actually the hardest stuff to get to if we really think about it. So that that makes that makes a lot of sense. I, uh, uh, you know, this might sound like a funny question, but I think you know when it really comes down to the where the rubber meets the road for most people is when they get in the car and drive to the grocery store. Uh, so yeah. where, where do you shop for food and kind of or how do you shop for food? You know, that's to, a great question. That's a great question. Now, I love this time of year. I live in a, you know, in a mountain town, so we don't have an all-year-round farmer's market, although there's a few that kind of keep some greenhouse stuff going, and I can join CSAs to keep that going. But my Saturday morning ritual when I'm in town is to go to my local farmer's market because that's also where I'm being exposed to a lot of unique you know, um, heirlooms and things that I wouldn't ever find in a grocery store, right? So that's always fun. And I love to also know the people who lovingly and blood, sweat, and tearingly <laughs> created the food that I'm ingesting. And so there's a relationship there that also, frankly, for me, as esoteric as it sounds, I think it enhances the nourishment of the food to have a connection with the person who built, who grew it for me um, or, um, you know, processed it for me. So that's a big, a big step there. Otherwise, in my community alone, in a town of 20,000 and 60,000 in the whole county, we have three health food stores. And our regular grocery stores are loaded with organic options um, around there. So really, there's no excuse in my community to not have this food readily available. Um, so, But folks who live in some you know, food desert, mm-hmm. you know, there are loads of online options. There's like U.S. Wellness Meats, for instance. I have a lot of patients. Or the Butcher Box. You know, for people who don't have quality animal protein options. Um, and then, of course, I tell people you can definitely go online, and I know you've probably got tons of resources. I've seen them in the back of the Acres magazine as well, mm-hmm. of, you know, places that you can find a listing of your local farmer's markets and local ranchers and folks that you might not know existed under your very nose for all these years because they tend to be people who can't be flashy or showy or market or advertise because they're spending their time growing and providing your food. So it's more of a labor of love and a word of mouth. And so you've got to be a little bit of a detective to find these things. But ultimately for me, I want to know where my food comes from. Mm. And when I'm traveling all over the country and all over the world, which I do, I do my homework before I even go to an airport. If I'm going to be traveling for a long day, I look at what are the best options for me that I could eat that I'm there or what can I take with me to avoid being, you know, look, McDonald's is my only choice type of thing. And then I also find out what's on the ground when I get to my destination, what organic restaurants or little farmer's markets or little health food stores are close by that I could go and nourish myself while I'm traveling. And so those are just little strategies. A little bit of preparation goes a very long way. And when in doubt, I fast like our ancestors did. Right. And so, you know, that's another thing. We've gotten so far away. We get so scared. We're like, oh, my God, I've gone two hours. I've got to graze on something. <laughs> we should easily be able to fast for up to, upwards of several days because we did historically. You know, you're, sure. you did not have your antelope and your, you know, potato salad available to you <laughs> 24-7, 150 years ago, 200 years ago, right? You, so you had to have moments, and definitely beyond that, you 
God only knows how much you feasted and famined in those moments. But today we get so stuck and so fearful of not eating that it creates this constant graze you know, process within us. And when we are grazing, we are metabolically unstable. We really tweak our insulin and we actually prevent something called autophagy. Okay. Hmm. It's basically a very fancy word to say garbage cleaner. Okay. <laughs> garbage pickup. So when you give yourself a break simply from your last meal at night mm-hmm. and then 12 to 13 hours later the next day, your body has had the time to clean house, to eliminate and sort of sweep out from the mouth to the anus and everything in between yeah. really nicely so your pump is primed for the next quality meal you choose to put in. That makes a lot of sense. I, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I do not feel uh, as creative after I eat a meal. I will put it that way. So I know I'm not firing on all, on all functions at that point. Yeah. Uh, that makes a lot and of sense. And folks who do feel sleepy after a meal, that's a clue mm-hmm. that right. they're metabolically unstable. Or people who feel like they have to eat every four hours, that's a clue. Or people who can't simply finish their last meal by like 6 or 7 o'clock at night and then have to somehow have a snack before bedtime and then maybe wake up to have a snack or put something in their mouth the second they wake up, they're not metabolically flexible. Those are your clues that you need to prime the pump and you need to do a little more testing, assessing, and addressing. And then the other big symptom of your mitochondria not functioning, which is going to be your precursor to all chronic illness, including cancer, is fatigue. Because fatigue is about energy storage and energy processing, and that is done in the, in the mitochondria. And so if you're feeling chronically fatigued, no matter how much sleep you get, your mitochondria aren't working, and you want to go work with someone who can help you tune that up. That uh, uh, makes a lot of sense. I think uh, we're, we're learning, I'm sensing a theme, that it really is when you're not feeling right, focus on the yeah. basics, you know, good food, good water. Uh, I assume exercise. We haven't talked about that really, but that 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 that, that would be a third. Being active, I think exercise sometimes yeah. is a bad word because people think of it as like headbands and sweatbands and sweatpants in the yeah. gym. Um, <laughs> but just like being out in nature, going right. for a walk, or if you're a farmer, you're just like it's part of your day. Right. right? Yeah. You are in motion. We we averaged four hours a day outdoors just 150 years ago. You know, today, as I said at the beginning of the show, less right. than 15 minutes. Is, is pretty common. And then we're sitting, right? They now call sitting the new cigarette smoke. And so the beauty of our farmers and our ranchers is they can also be our mentors and remind us to be in motion, you know, as much as possible and be outdoors as much as possible, you know? And one of the things also, just kind of how this segues in, mm-hmm. we're also becoming a very feral society. And right. so we've seen plenty of studies that show that kids that were raised on farms or ranches mm-hmm. and have numerous pets that were out in the soil putting dirt in their mouths and under their fingernails have far more robust immune systems than those that were in very overly hygienic, you know, make sure to use your hand sanitizer everywhere you go and use your little hand sanitizer wipers on your, you know, the handle right. of the grocery store on your grocery cart. Those are the things that have been destroying our internal soil. And then we start to, you know, eat foods that are grown in very thick soil. Right. And so it just perpetuates the problem altogether. That, uh, that yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, uh, uh, I, I've always wondered how to, uh, you know, I, I, I was really lucky because I was born, I guess, with, with something in me. They just, if I sit more than, you know, right after this podcast, I've been sitting in my office for an hour. I'm, I'm going to have to stand mm-hmm. up and i got to go outside and get some fresh air because, you know, uh, about an hour or two in an office at a time is about all I can stand. But, um, yeah, and, and I think having a dog is also something that really helps me. Uh, you got to go walk the dog every couple hours as well. <laughs> get, get, get you out of the house. So, 
uh, yeah, I think there's all sorts of ways that we can get exercise without having to think too hard about it at that point. Exactly, uh, exactly. And that's just, that, those are the, and that's where I want people to get back to just a right. general rhythm, yeah. you know, a general like, okay, am I coming, waking up with the sun? Am I going into bed with the sun? Am I eating within the daylight hours? Do I know where my food came from? Did I drink water all throughout the day? Mm -hmm. Did I move my body and get outdoors for more than 15 minutes? Those simple things, which sounds so simple, they're very common sense, but frankly, they're very hard for most people to achieve in a day-to-day basis. And that has led to a thicker and thicker society. And, and again, I think that um, we are being pushed, thankfully, uh, to reconsider how we've oversimplified our lives and made technology, the, you know, God, where it's like, well, at the very least, take your iPad outdoors. <laughs> you know? right. Like, I'm, I'm trying right. to help people, you know, like kind of for in fact, I'm doing a talk at a, a low-carb USA conference, um, which is going to have an entire arm speaking to cardiovascular, an entire arm talking to diabetes, an entire arm talking to cancer, an entire arm to obesity. And, you know, so just to give you that idea that, yes, these are hot topics out there, but I'm speaking specifically to cycles of nature. And so when I spoke at Acres last year, I talked about the soil, the internal soil, and how it matches the external soil and how we can work on that. Now I'm going to be speaking to this other group about cycles and how we have our own ritual routine, circadian rhythm. You know, in fact, the the uh, uh, Nobel, Nobel Prize for Science this year went to scientists in their studies of the circadian rhythm. I mean, it's a big wow. deal. And then it looks like I'll be speaking again on soil and maybe a little bit deeper into this topic at the Acres Conference again this year. And just a cool plug that I'd like to say about you and your organization is that I speak worldwide at medical scientific conferences all over the place. And I speak to naturopaths and I speak to integrative healthcare providers and functional medicine doctors who theoretically, this should be very intuitive, the things that I'm saying. Mm -hmm. But I'm here to tell you, when I went to Acres last year, my only regret is I didn't know more about it and stay for the whole thing. Because one of the things I experienced in just visiting with people, um, even before I did my talk, mm -hmm. and after my talk, and for the, the day I was there, this group got it better than any group I've ever talked to. You guys are our hope for the future. <laughs> you know, it, it made me emotional then in saying that to the collective, but I, I feel it coming up again. It's like, I know that the healthcare, our, the future of our healthcare is dependent on cultivating relationships with our farmers and ranchers that are going back to ways that are non-toxic and enhancing of the soil microorganisms and enhancing of the nutrient density so that we can turn ourselves around and shape ourselves, frankly, from ourselves. Well, I, I, you, we're getting close to the end of the hour, and that's a heck of a note to end on, quite honestly, because my last <laughs> question was going to be, what message do you have for, for, for farmers out there? Uh, is there anything else you'd want to add to that? I just want to express my incredible gratitude to all the people that nourish us. Well, uh, thank you again, Dr. Nisha Winters, uh, for your time and for sharing your expertise and your passions. Uh, I can tell how passionate you are about this subject. You've got me fired up. Uh, hopefully our audience feels the same way. Um, uh, if you want to learn more, you can obviously pick up her book, uh, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer. You can get it from Acres USA or Chelsea Green. Um, you can attend our conference in December in Louisville to hear your all-day class. Uh, where else, if people want to learn more, can they learn more about what you're doing? 
Um, they can check me out on OptimalTerrainConsulting.com. That's my website. Um, I will also, on that website, I have a list of a lot of the events that I'm up to this year, including a lot of my um, speaking engagements. I also have the opportunity to speak at Weston Price this year um, and a few other conferences that I think are up the alley of the Acres community. So have a look at that. And also, if you are a Facebook person, I have um, the Metabolic Approach to Cancer Facebook page as well as the Meta um, Optimal Terrain Consulting page, which I'm always keeping updated research and little tidbits of fun information and sharing of what's going on in my world on a day-to-day -day basis that can inspire all of you. Perfect. Well, I'll tell you, hang on the line real quick. I'll wrap this up and uh, I'll get back to you in a second, okay? Thanks. All right. uh, thank you again to everybody for listening to Tractor Time Podcast by Acres USA. Again, I'm your host, uh, Ryan Slab. I'm your very lucky host today. And today's guest is Dr. Nasha Winners. Um, thank you for listening. And you can find our podcast at acresusa.com, at ecofarmingdaily.com, or on the Apple Podcast page. Uh, thanks again for listening and have a good rest of your week.